Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it's almost three years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and their thinking may have changed since we last spoke to them. So we have created a new FuturePod series called The Reinterviews. Today, we are reinterviewing Sahail Inatula. We originally interviewed Sahail in the first series of Podcast 22, From Metaphor to Mantra. And after that, we chatted to him during the coronavirus series in Podcast 55. And it's a very interesting podcast where Sahail and I, even early on in the pandemic, were talking about the rise of conspiracy theories, the role of spirit and science, and how society tried to wrestle with that. And Sahail spent a lot of time playing basketball, enjoying the beach and not travelling, but he has still been around the world in many, many ways. Welcome back to FuturePod, Sahail. Thanks so much, Peter. Great to be here. So, Sahail, you write that Michel Foucault has a particular interest in when eras end and what happens at those transitions. And yeah, you do say that Foucault was not an historian, but there have been many, many people framing through history and, and macro history that could that can talk about it. So how could we see the transition that we're currently in at the moment? I think Foucault is important to us, anyone trying to make sense of the changes we're witnessing. One, he wasn't trying to make a macro history a grand pattern of theory, because that's not what he believed in. His thing was really going into the detail when eras shift, what are some of those indicators? I think he's most useful in pointing out particular transitions, but also framing them as epistemic ruptures, meaning we have a way of understanding the world. We have agreements, this is reality, and then something changes and that agreement is no longer shared. So within those non-sharing spaces, one can see them differently. Conspiracy theorists, end of the world, the end is coming. Others see it, well, it's too difficult to understand what's going on. We're in post-normal, abnormal, something not right times. And I'm much more inspired by the theological school. Let's see these transitions as difficult, but as transitions to somewhere. So in the recent piece I've been working on power in medicine called morbid symptoms, I was exploring, well, what are some of those grander theories that can help us understand the present as well as give a sense of the emerging era? These eras of fear are also pregnant with possibility because if we believe the future can be shaped, then it's often in these moments where we can actually get the greatest leverage. Yes, if we take Sorokin, so Sorokin's view was pretty clear. You have a sensate civilization for 500 years. As it breaks down, people aren't sure what's real, what's true, what's beautiful. And normally then you shift a pendulum shift to ideational or very much a view that only spirit is real, only mind is real. But he talks about the in-between phase, you can also have an integrated civilization where you get both mind and matter is real. So that becomes quite hopeful. So if we go back to the 14th, 15th century, remembering Wallerstein, there's this great quote he has when there was a battle, you might say a hundred year battle between the cathedral and the castle. Who would win out? 
and eventually who wins out are those outside the cathedral and the castle, and you get the rise of the world capitalist system. Hmm. It's the traitors, the people outside the walls. And so that becomes the surprise. So then Sorkin says, well, here's again a possibility. We're in a dramatic change. We don't have agreement. And having no agreement is very painful. This is not just a general theory of, well, this isn't this fantastic, this transition. Most people experience some type of lived pain, whether you find out your parents or spouse is anti-vaxxer or a Trump supporter or something like that in terms of areas that I find distressing. And suddenly what seemed, we're not on the same page. We don't even, some people don't even believe paper exists. <laughs> so it's not just metaphors that help us understand the root of the metaphor is challenged. And so then it's, it can be quite distressing. So that's how I would frame this. So now what's helpful for me is Sorkin is very helpful. Then of course, you know, as a student of Sarkar, I find him very helpful arguing that we've had worker, warrior, intellectual capitalist eras, and this era is ending. And now we're in the transition to something else. And that something else is the structures of the past but that something else is what we're creating. And that's where Futures comes in and say, okay, let's live in the space of agency and imagine preferred futures and create them. The worker energy is interesting in terms of it can give service to science, it can give service to the market, it can give service to the castle, or it can bring chaos. That's its second form of how it influences its preferred future, so to speak. Yeah, and we're seeing, I think, a bit of a bit of worker chaos around the world where people don't agree with the castle and don't agree with the intellectuals. Yeah, yeah. Now within that, it can be painful. So now I just saw what was most amazing to me: uh, Trump's chief of staff. He now his PowerPoint is available, the January fifth PowerPoint. Yeah, which was basically a PowerPoint about how to stage a coup. Hmm. And so that idea that they're staging a coup in the U.S. in itself is so fascinating, right? But the idea that it was a coup agenda on PowerPoint, it wasn't, was it Martin Luther King where he posted the demands <laughs> on the church? No, he's actually done a PowerPoint. And when I looked at the PowerPoint, I thought, oh, my God, this is a poorly done PowerPoint. <laughs> the coup part it became uninteresting. It was, why didn't he use more images? <laughs> Why was it so text-heavy? How come the chief of staff doesn't understand visual imagery? And, and so suddenly that becomes a debate. But, but, but the, re, the real, I mean, that's, you know, Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. So the technology, again, creates us. Yep. We create technology and technology creates us. And so now that he kept that PowerPoint, and that could be used again in a series of ways to capture them and say, well, this was a coup. But in any case, all these instances get us to this, are we in a transition and the workers challenge, challenge reality? Now, what's difficult for most people, especially spiritual new age groups, is if this is correct and they're challenging conventional views of reality, the era afterwards for Sarkar is a warrior system. The warrior system is noble, it's about honor, but it's far more structured than what the workers want. Now, the workers are challenging not just views mm. of reality, but also quite rightfully, wait a second, you said we had to go to the factory as office, and actually we don't need to. We've COVID-19 has shown that we can actually live and create in different ways that aren't required. And so this suddenly now, those in the castle, the cathedral, here seeing the university as part of that becomes quite challenging because what seemed as given 
is now seeing, wait a second, this wasn't given, it was invented. And that's Foucault's brilliance, to say we see history as given, as natural, and suddenly these moments of grand transition suggested, wait a second, these aren't natural, these were created and invented, and thus, as Dater always says, we can reinvent them. So this era becomes partly about reinventing new institutions, partly about going through, I would say, a period of dark passageway saying what's real. So in this power and medicine field, it's saying, well, people are saying Western science is not real. And then now I go back to Sarkar traces the history of Ayurvedic. He says, why did Ayurvedic give way to the Western system in India, even though they were already doing vaccination and surgery? So why don't we have a holistic system? And he traces it back to actually there was Ayurvedic got lost in the anti-needle dogma, the fear of needles. They felt it wasn't holistic, and so they missed the revolution. So that's kind of a Foucaultian one event, anti-needle, suddenly they're way behind. And so this piece was arguing, well, we can, let's create a holistic health system, which of course for me starts with vaccinations, but then goes on to next city design. How do we design cities so there's anticipatory, they're living, they're healthier, they're well-being based, and then moves on to personal genomics, precision medicine, and then concludes, let's move to a 5P health system, which is personal medicine, prevention, precision, partnership, and participatory. So it understands that many people are afraid of doctors. They're afraid they don't have a voice, but it doesn't challenge the notion that in fact, reproducible, predictable, double blind science is the way to go. So it's science plus, not let's get rid of science and enter the world of conspiracy where 5G causes COVID. Is part of the bodily fear this notion that we are somehow sacred vessels that have firm boundaries and things that come through our our kind of you know skin or boundary are bad for us, therefore we need to be self-contained, as opposed to seeing us as a network, not with boundaries, but actually with porous, where we're actually part of the environment, where we're actually part of nature, where we're actually part of spirit. No, I think you're right. I mean, that's a brilliant point. For me, the reaction to the, the modernity of the factory, where the factory in the university is toxic because of rules by deans and vice chancellors, etc. The factory for workers is toxic because of actually pollutants. But the reversion is let's go to some level of purity. To so the purity, let's live in nature. Let's only, let's purity of self, ethnicity, purity of purity, purity, purity. And that becomes the reaction. And the solution is what you're saying. It's self in society, self in ecology, that we're actually nested in different systems. I mean, purity is a very, seems seems noble, seems honourable, but purity is a very unsubtle way to enforce you aren't part of the system, you aren't part of the world, you are different, you have a different colour, you have a, or whatever, you know. So to me, purity is almost a kind of unhelpful notion, almost a pejorative notion that actually means we actually cannot adapt as well, we cannot become holistic. Yeah, I mean, that's what I loved about William Irwin Thompson's work and Ashish Nani too. They always talked about a, a Gaia of civilizations. So each civilization disowns the other, and thus we have multiple civilizations. And a Gaian mm. view is that we need them all in some way. But that doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. 
So I'm not surprised in terms of the freedom rallies, anti-vaxxer movements, that you have strong elements of neo-Nazism, which has always been based on purity. So then from the new age, you also get the same thing. We're more pure, we're more natural, and thus we won't allow foreign substances. But the mythology overwhelms the rationality. So thus I have, I know people who are won't vaccine, but very willing to take drugs designed for horses, ivermectin. Yep. So the purity becomes even a mythology around purity. So it becomes a reaction. And thus you see Ayurvedic lose against Western science. And for me, the goal becomes this uh, essentially both end. So let's find a way where we keep what works in science, but also understands people want doctors to listen to them. People want their spiritual life to be acknowledged. So this becomes Sorkin's imagined possibility. As a 500 years of sensate civilization break down, we don't want to move to a world of mentalities where the main goal is spiritual purity, mental purity, bodily purity. It's really this alternative way of seeing both then and using that as a way forward. This then transition becomes a move towards a both end civilization, the integrated civilization, or in Sarkar's language, the, the Sadvipa society, worker, warrior, intellectual, capitalist, all working together. This hopefully pushes the debate that, in fact, don't see this transition as hopeless, even though it's difficult, but we are moving towards somewhere. And you can, I mean, I'd be happy to be accused of being overly theological, but I'm quite okay with that. Because we know from Pollock's work as futurists, without a compelling preferred vision of the future, a desired image, we do get lost. So our role is very much, we're in a transition, let's make sense of it, and let's ensure we have a positive image of the future. And then I think that's critical, because right now all I see on TV shows are dystopian movies. Ali Montezami, he just finished his master's at uh, Tomkin University, and he explored arguing why are all the science fiction movies, everything dystopian. And they're doing us a favor in the sense, here's the world we don't want. But I think there's a seduction where we get lost in the world instead of saying, wait a second, let's get clear, we need to move towards a positive vision of the future. So this is where macro history really informs futures thinking in a way beyond running a few scenario planning workshops for clients. I'm going to ask you to wade into the role played by the Sadvipra, the the revolutionary that supports effectively the evolution of change, the evolution of, of transition, and how that sits with when you look at our governance systems around the world, how can a Sadvipra and how can a servant leader emerge in this transition process? If you look back at Sarkar's work on four archetypes, and he used the Indian system, the, the worker, the warrior, the intellectual, the capitalist, but remember, let's make sure he's very much challenging the caste system as being evil because it takes away meritocracy. But let's assume there are these four archetypes, and Sarkar's argument, is there a fifth, one who can serve, one who has courage to set boundaries, this is wrong, corruption is wrong, one who uses ideas to create new ideas, a new renaissance, and one who ensures that capital keeps on moving, the money keeps on flowing instead of getting stuck in billionaires or trillionaires. So if we take that, then the Sadvipra becomes a person, a community who understand, here's the emerging future, let's nudge, let's push towards there, let's not get lost in religion or nationality. So if that's possible, then the tension becomes, well, how does that sit with democratic politics? 
because every time I run a workshop with political leaders, whether it's the prime minister level, the mayor level, the ministerial level, they tend to say the same thing. This is fantastic, but I need to get reelected in three, four years. Mm-hmm. So then is the Sadvipur Council a ministry of the future, a council of future generations, a body of elders, wise elders. So that's one role. It becomes extra to the democratic system. So we don't challenge the amazing division in terms of Montesquieu and you know Jeffersonian papers between the executive, parliament, and judicial, but we add something to it. And that's done at the bottom level, individuals who exhibit those criteria, and at the top level where you institutionalize some type of system where you're forced to listen to those perspectives. And so that tension, I think, I think we need them both. I would not want just the wisdom elders without the democratic process, mm. but a democratic process that every workshop I run, they keep on saying, yes, but I can't get reelected. I remember head of European Parliament five years ago said, we know what the right thing to do in terms of climate change is. None of us believe we can get reelected on it, so we're going to do nothing. And mayors tell me the same thing. Yes, we want a greener world. We want more gender equity. Yes, we want, want more integration of spirit and matter. All everything that's coming on these workshops, we believe in, but we're not going to publicly say it because we want to get reelected. So this tension is something we have to deal with. And so this tension is pointing to, again, the old systems weren't working, but we were saying about the university. The challenge COVID has challenged the university. You don't have to be in the university factory. And so work we were doing with, with, with government of Malaysia, they said, okay, let's go from bricks and mortar. You just show up in our force feed to the jukebox, like in Australia, students have choices. Then start to imagine the Uber, Uberification of the university where a student can access knowledge anywhere, anytime, anywhere. Now, to do that means nation states have to relinquish control of curriculum, and then you move towards this amazing model of micro-nano certification. So you still have experts, but certification becomes a lifelong process as opposed to getting, in a way, controlled by the castle of the university. Mm-hmm. This is becomes, and so then a Sadvipra system becomes one that encourages an ecology of learning and can exist anywhere. It's an interesting one because it sounds to me like a kind of community patronage where, as you say, this kind of micro-certification means a lower level of the hierarchy that is trying to be wise on behalf of everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think Tanshri Zul, the VC at uh, IIUM in Malaysia, he, he says we're in a weird situation right now and we need to, you know, reductionists, et cetera, and we move, need to move to a wiser society. So holistic, integrated, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of, and I'd like his framing, where to wiser. We had a structure, we're in the period of disassociation, restructuring, and the critical part, our role in futures is start to imagine this new future. And then the way to create that becomes asking myself, each one of us, going back to narrative, what's my story in this new future? And so this goes back to our earlier thing on, on mantra metaphor, and I still remember I think within 15 years ago, a workshop for a group in Canberra. And they were a leading supplier in the science and I think disability field. And the workshop was partly going well. One vice president loved it. The CEO was just loving it. And a second vice president hated it throughout. And she was challenging the entire structure, the contract, everything about it, she was challenging at every level. And this created a sense of uh, disquiet, distress in the group. And so then the conclusion, then at 3.30, I asked her what's going on. 
And she goes, well, look, we just did the narrative work and the narrative work is clear. We're like a Sleeping Beauty and the Prince. The Prince's government funding, we're Sleeping Beauty waiting for the money. And I said, yeah, that works. We need to get out of that and create a metaphor where we're not always waiting for the Prince. And she said, yeah, that's true. But And then I asked her who she was and she said very clearly, can't you see I'm the wicked stepsister? Mm-hmm. And the minute she said that, one, everyone had relief. Okay, here's why she's been angry. At the same time, since I hadn't built in a way to do inner work during the workshop to claim the Sadvipra space, as it were, the entire process collapsed. And it ended, everyone said, best workshop ever. And both my colleague Robert and I knew we would never see them again. Yeah. Because the wicked stepsister, she knew her power. The CEO, the other vice president did not have a narrative. And that was my failure. Once she said that, I would have said, great, stop. Each one of us, let's figure out our story. And I would have taken them to the next epistemic level. My failure in real time to be mindful was I didn't know what to do. So this becomes your question in future scenario workshops and change agents, getting clear in the organization, the story, getting clear on what our roles were. And if that's not done well, there's problems. I know a large mental health group in this country. We did this fantastic two-day workshop. And by a day and a half, they had a new vision of mental health, how to get funding for mental health, how to use AI to link with Google, how to do early prediction of suicides. Very much saying, and they had they had understood, I and mean, this was before COVID, but this was giving them all the tools to fly during COVID. And so this was going fantastic. We're about to enter a period of destabilization. Mental health will be in trouble. How do we make sure we lead? By 1 p.m. on the second day, there was slippage again. The CEO, the chair of the board, they were getting nervous. They were going back to what they knew. So then I ran the Sarkar game, and it was perfect timing. So the game's going, and one of the warriors picks up a gun and shoots everyone in the room, except for one person who had money, everyone. And then we, you know, we finished, and we made some jokes, and then we said, now let's do the CLA part. Let's go to narrative mythology, the new story for organization. And the chair of board says, we're not doing anything. I go, what do you mean? She goes, wait a second. I'm still in distress. I forgot her name. Jessica just shot all the board, the CEO, all the caseworkers, and persons in the room who had lived experience. She just shot them. You're telling me we're going to do something else now? And so then I stopped and I talked to Jessica. I said, Jessica, the board chair says you're a sociopath. And I tend to agree. And she stood up and did something surprising. She stood up from the chair and put her hand up as if she was an angel. And she says, I'm the angel of mercy. I'm the figure of light. I bring peace to all of you. And I think, what are you talking about? And she said, we're about to make a shift to a future-oriented organization that partners, that ensures Australia's mental health system is transformed. In the last 90 minutes, everyone in the room has backed away from that image, Mm -hmm. that vision. I'm not going to allow it. It's better everyone is dead than us go back to the worldview new because that worldview new is unsustainable and we have to transform it. Wow. And so then I looked at her. She had taken the Sadvipa role. I'm not recommending killing everyone in the room. This was, of course, a game. But she understood. She should have done it in a different way. But she understood the old system had to be destroyed so new one could be created. And that was a choice she made. I'm hearing Sahail. I think we've had this conversation now three times. I'm not hearing it again. We, and I'm talking us as a community, as a, as a futures community, we're often comfortable and so are our clients. We're comfortable in changing the world out there and the nature of how we work and the services we give and that kind of thing. Our blind spot 
is when we turn it back into inside of ourselves and ask what do we have to become in order to mesh with that future. Yeah, the, the level of mindfulness required then, when she had done that, it's only six months later I really understood what she had done. At that moment, there was a conversation, but the level of being able to look at what's going on in a room, to be mindful about it, and stay in theory and stay in actually, here's the vision forward. This event that just happened in the room is a departure. And what she's really saying, let's now reinforce that. Who wants to go back to business as usual? Who wants to create something else? So that way, the CEO and the chair of the board need to jump in. The piece I'm writing on power in medicine is really my response to distress, finding out too many of my close friends are anti-vaxxers. And enough of them believe that 5G caused COVID-19, that they're lost in conspiracy. So I was like, how do I respond to this in a way that makes sense? So then that piece became almost therapeutic, saying, okay, I'm not going to go their route, but how do we bring back a way around science and medicine that brings in the spirit without going, in my mind, into a world where they're choosing solutions that are nonsensical? I know the number of people in India where parliamentarians are recommending drinking cow urine. And you know, th there's no evidence base around that. But I understand what they're saying. We're frustrated with the current system. So I warned, I'm looking for ways personally, how do I bring in this, the spiritual part of life with the scientific part, with science as the base? So that becomes, I think, for me, and, and I think you share that as futures, how do we do this both and consistently? Hmm. Even in a situation where things are falling apart, it seems in the short run. In the long run, I don't believe so. And the person who steps into the sad Vipra role, as that as that woman did, they actually, as you said, they stand on an ideology, they stand on a principle, they stand on a they stand on a future that is a future worth you know, acting from. And that can be the wrong future yeah. for the time, but the sad Vipran has to act as if it is the right future. Yeah, there's a leap of faith there. There's a jump. I mean, there's, you know, she had done the analysis. I think she had figured out what was going on in the room. There's a possibility to jump to a different future or a possibility to stay in the old future. And based on all the evidence she could see, everyone was going back to what they knew. And she was a caseworker. She wasn't a CEO or the board chair. She was actually a caseworker who was doing the nine to five with persons with lived experience. And so this was to me the role where then the chair, the CEO steps in and says, okay, wait a second, she's right. Can we now have the meta conversation as an organization? We're in a transition. Where do we really want to be in 10 years? Hmm. So that opening was there and the CEO didn't jump in. As it turns out, when I called back three months later to see, okay, what are the impact of the workshop? And they said, yeah, the CEO was fired. We didn't think that person could get us there. And, and so now, you know, I almost like anytime I'm working with an organization to say, well, by the way, the work we're going to do, don't see this again. I'm not putting down your plan. Don't see this as kind of a rational force scenario we're going to create to reduce risk. No, you're actually jumping in into a deeper foresight process, which will make things feel uncertain. But if you play this, as you were saying, where everyone in the room is mindful of their mythology, their action, you can use this as transformation. So I really try to give groups that warning. Don't see this as just a playful exercise or a fascination of the future. We're involved in a group transformation project, given all the evidence that the world as we know it is going through dramatic changes. 
if you accept that, then how can you say, well, we're just going to do a few scenarios and it's over? No, the world is going through dramatic changes. Some unknown, some known. Where do we stand in this transitional process? The person is now part of the drama, part of the change and in the most holistic way because, and they bring all of themselves to the change, both their inside and their outside. Yeah, and then our role then becomes how to make this safe. I would say workshop after workshop, now moving away from macro history, going to, again, what we're saying about embedded learning experiences. What I find is people describe their experience in organizations as being in a castle surrounded by hungry wolves. So the castle is a protected space, it's friendship groups, and you know we all love that. But hungry wolves are outside, and how do we then transform the castle? And what comes across more and more of a castle to playground, castle to ecological park, castle to make the wolves into huskies and go with purpose on a, on a sleigh. So all talk about this transition. And then it's making sure if we're going to leave the castle and enter this new space, how to make sure people feel safe in it. Because I know some people say, well, it's simple. Invite the wolves into the castle. I said, well, they've been hungry. They're angry at you. They're just going to eat you up. What's your safety mechanism? Again, when we ran this international police, I've said this story many times. They just said, find the head of the wolf pack and kill them which eliminates short-term risk, but you're still in a situation where now you don't have you don't have partnerships. You don't have people you can work with. You've lost your weak signals that give you information about the future. So that we're in terms of the new health paradigm. If it's, you know, personalization, participation, prevention, the partnership becomes a critical way to create that. So then it's not the lone wolf per se, it's, it's a community of sadvipras. We need allies in this heroine's journey, in this hero's journey. There has to be some transformation here. Mindfully, in terms of this conversation, what we're trying to do, which may be not so easy for listeners, we're trying to understand that each one of us in any situation is mindful of what's going on when we're doing a workshop, a presentation, or engagement as futurists, or even as change agents. At the same time, the macro history part helps us understand these are deep structural forces. And these structural forces are long patterns of change. We're at the end of the capitalist system, the end of patriarchy, technology that forces us to be able to recreate nature. These are big changes. So as we're in this transition, part of our work is helping people understand we're in this transition. Here's the new future that could emerge. The second part of it is giving each person a skill so they develop the skill sets. They're comfortable. They're confident. They can play a role in that. Hmm. And so this is this inner, outer self and other. And that's kind of this, this view of futures that both of us share. And that's really why people love entering this space. And the warning here is it's a bit more difficult now because again, if you read through Suma Chen in terms of his work on Shiji, Chinese macro history, there's a phase of agreement when the Tao is the Tao. And phase two, the Tao is no longer the Tao. The rivers are no longer rivers. Everything is up for grabs. And our goal is to get people to phase three where the Tao returns, but in a way that's more inclusive. I like that you've introduced this notion of the overriding ethic of safety safety for the group trying to do the change, safety for the people who need to work with it, safety for the people who have to ultimately, if you like, are the servants of the change. But this notion and possibly what we've been through the last couple of years, maybe safety is a useful metaphor to reframe purpose for groups. 
No, I think you're right. If transition one is GDP to well-being, then part of what we're learning about COVID is uh, safety, personal safety, this community safety that we feel safe. And then we want to ensure who we're with helps us create that safety. And when things are changing dramatically, especially in the coding sense of epistemic ruptures or even the ways of knowing are being challenged, then we're not going to engage in those conversations unless we feel safe. So that becomes, I think you're right, part of our role. We're not there to just be the person popping balloons if the result in that is people don't want to jump to a new future. They want to go back to the cave. So it's safely venturing onwards and forward. Okay, so Hail, so wrapping up. I guess the main argument I want to make is we're in a transition. As futurists, we want to ensure that we have positive images of this transition, of course, understanding the challenges we're facing. And lately, I've been calling these challenges, remembering Gramsci, are morbid symptoms, the anti-vaxxer movement, the rise of COVID, conspiracy theories, and leaders such as Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, etc., who've instead, instead of facing the future, have gone back to the past. Now, if we go away from the current politics and use macro history, deep structures, we can be informed by Sorkin, who reminds us these are long-term patterns, more moving from sensei to an ideational or integrated society. So the rules, the episteme will change. Sarkar reminds us the transition is moving. We have worker, warrior, intellectual, capitalist society. That era is ending, and the worker shift, peer to peer, evolution, revolution, creates a new system. The creation of that new system is on the leading edge, as you mentioned, Sadvipras. Protect, serve, innovate, ensure finances, money keeps on flowing. So that leads to what do we do as persons? I always had a speech with Fida Adra, and she said her role as CEO, they gave her innovation budget. That innovation budget gave her permission. And that was critical. It mm. gave her a safe space to help invent the future she wanted. With that, she could make the transition from where they are today to where they could be tomorrow. Futures thinking is about giving us all permission to imagine, create, and discover. Awesome. Awesome stuff, mate. Sahail, it's always wonderful to spend time talking to you and thanks for taking some time out to talk with the community. My pleasure. Thanks for pushing me. I had no idea we were going to go in this direction. I appreciate it. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.